Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio, a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the fields of holistic wellness and sustainable living. I am your host, Todd Howard, coming to you from Ravenhill Herb Farm, a permaculture design campus of Pacific Rim College in Victoria, British Columbia. As the show's guests demonstrate, by doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. Celebrity chef Dan Hayes is co-owner of Victoria's premier cooking school, The London Chef. In this gastronomic episode, we explore the beginning of Dan's love for food, his childhood in England and Spain, hunting wild game, and a boarding school chef. He went on to work in the kitchens of some of Europe's most revered seafood chefs, including Rick Stein, Mich Tonks, and Pierre Rosiglioni. A woman eventually entered the picture, now Dan's wife, Michaela, and a new life in Canada unfolded, eventually leading to two beautiful daughters. We discussed the early days of renegade catering, the creation of The London Chef, and nearly a decade with the hit TV show Moose Meat and Marmalade, which led Dan to less visited parts of Canada and hunting bigger wild game than in his youth. We also talk about Dan's current passion project of teaching cooking in local prisons, which is impacting his life and that of the prisoners in incredible ways. No chef interview would be complete without a close look at food, and we discuss many of Dan's favorites and borderline food addictions. If you love food, make a snack. Perhaps Dan's favorite, Medjool Dates, stuffed with peanut butter and salt. Pull up a chair and enjoy the flavors of this delicious episode. Dan Hayes, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I want to begin somewhere in the middle, which is with the conception of the London Chef. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, the London Chef was never a planned business. The London Chef is really many things. In many ways, the London Chef is me. I'm a chef and I was born in London and the London Chef is a business. And my wife, Michaela, and I we moved here 12 years ago and my background is I'm a restaurant chef and um, you know my, my, my background is restaurants in London and Spain and really when I moved here I wanted a break I wanted a sort of sabbatical for my career so I got a job in construction um, my wife Michaela got a job on a front desk in reception I got a job in construction and in the evenings we sort of um, started the London Chef. And it was literally doing cooking classes in community centers and senior homes and a bit of catering. I mean, on a very low level, you know, we'll come and cook Valentine's dinner for you and your wife, give us 50 bucks sort of thing. And that's how it all began. And within about six months, every single evening, seven nights of the week, we were doing something very small, probably highly illegal. And, you know, it was cash in hand. And that really was the start of the London Chef. And it grew and grew and grew and eventually, you know, quit the day job, came along. And before we knew it, we were taking the giant, terrifying and financially, <laughs> you know, impossible almost task of making the London Chef as it as, as it's known now, of course, on Fort Street. And... Um, that was nine years ago. And so really, when people say, are you the London chef, Dan? 
I say, well, I used to be because I used to be the London chef. If we were catering your wedding, I was there. If there was a cooking class, it was me. If you were eating a sandwich in the cafe, I had made it. Of course, you know, luckily those days are behind us. And now the London chef is a company. Within that company, I have a role and um, I'm no longer really the London chef. You have an incredible facility. Is it, you call it a cooking kitchen? We call it a cooking, cooking school. school yeah. Cooking school. How did that come about from this early beginning of catering in people's homes? Yeah, so when, when we initially came up with the concept of let's open a cooking school, um, we knew that if we were going to do a cooking school, we had to also do some other things. And this space became available and it was actually the Joels that were, and the Lees that were incredibly helpful. And um, they're the owners of the building and the, and the property management of the building. And Mike Joel and his son, Dave Joel in particular, were, were, were amazing at helping us out, figure it all out. Um, and we knew we needed more than just a cooking school. So we had the pantry, the cafe, catering, and the cooking school. And, you know, it's only 2,500 square feet, so it was a lot to pack in there. So we used designers and architects, but ultimately the design, which is the horseshoe design that anyone, you know, that um, has sort of been there will have experienced, that was drawn up on a bar napkin. That's all great ideas. Yeah, right? you know, after about four bottles of rosé at Brentwood Bay Lodge, all the great all the great ideas people are intoxicated when they <laughs> intoxicated when they all those bar napkins did you, did you save it i think we have it somewhere and really we came you know it, it's much easier and far cheaper to put stoves around the edge of a building around the edge of a room but we wanted to give people the idea of they're looking in we wanted everyone looking in and the way i teach is that i guide you along Everybody chop an onion, chuck it in a pan, whack some oil in there, a little bit of salt, get it sweating down. I'm not giving people step-by-step -step guides written down on paper with exact measurements. So it works for me to have everyone looking in at me. And um, that, yeah, that's how it started. This space has served you well for almost a decade. Correct. Is it still meeting all of your needs or are there things you would have done differently or would like to do now? You know, it's it, it, it serves our needs incredibly well. Of course, the fact is nearly every class we, every public class we ever teach, we could sell, sell out twice. So economies of scale come into play and one does think, wow, imagine if we had 24 people in here tonight because it would still be me and it would still be the same labor cost, maybe take it up a touch. And the food cost would be almost the same, a few extra chicken breasts. Um, and you know, the businessman comes out and starts thinking, well, it would be lovely to fit more heads, more bums on seats, as they say, but no, the space serves us incredibly well. And it's testament to the design it works. And also it's testament to the incredible craftsmanship that we had at the beginning, because that space takes a battering, as you can probably imagine. Some days there are three classes. It's not uncommon for 50 people to, to move through that space over the course of a day cooking and it still looks fa fabulous yeah what lessons if any 
or challenges did you face in the creation of the actual facility? Well, you know, Michaela, my wife, I have to say, she was the person who really put the most energy and effort into it. I was still working a day job and I'm fairly incapable at most things and she's capable at almost everything. Um, and so she really was the brains and I have to say the brawn behind it. Um, watching her have meetings with, you know, um, contractors and saying, well, you know, why is this light fixture $100? I've just been down to Canadian Tire and seen the same one for $42.99, you know. And really every, I mean, we, we joke that we haggled over every screw. That's a bit excessive, but it's not too far from the truth. Um, it was our money. We had very small amount of money. We borrowed some money and we had to make it work. Um there's no, you know, there was no trust fund to pull from. There was no um, external financier to pull from. Um, there was no investments to pull from. It was literally, I mean, it was two kids with a dream um, and we just had to figure it out. So really it was down Michaela. I mean, I take my hat off to what she achieved because on a very small budget, she achieved a lot. I want to come back to the London Chef and kind of the early years and how things have have gone and, and grown. But first, I want to step back to your background and as far back as you want to go. But where did this love and passion of food come from? Yeah, there's really two stories. There's the there's the there's the romantic story and then there's the reality. And I think they're both truthful. I was very lucky to have a wonderful, wonderful childhood. Um, I went to an amazing boarding school, Sunningdale School, when I was seven. And then after that to Stowe School, which are two of the greatest schools in the UK. And many people would argue the greatest schools in the world that, they're, 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 you know, on a par with Eton College and Ludgrove and all the, all, the big, all the big boarding schools in the UK that people talk about. I also had a wonderful time spending, you know, time in the English countryside with my parents and also in Spain on an island called Ibiza. And I had this incredible upbringing where food was very important. And um, I loved fishing and I loved hunting. And I was always fascinated by taking a wriggly fish home to mum or taking a rabbit or a pheasant to the school cook. And then that evening eating, you know, I don't know, roast trout pate or that night eating a roast pheasant or a rabbit pie and I found it fascinating the connection how do you go from this wriggly fish covered in scales and you know slime to a trout pate sandwich and how do you go from this pheasant covered in feathers very much a creature with a head and a beak and you know feet to roast pheasant and gravy or rabbit pie this furry animal that I certainly knew how to shoot, but I didn't know how to turn it into rabbit pie, bubbling and crispy, <laughs> crispy crust and all the rest of it. And I found that fascinating. And that's really the bit that, that drew me into cooking, the fascination with nature and how it can become food. Who was turning your caches into your meals? Well, my mom and my grandma in sort of summer holidays. And then at school we had, I remember at Sunningdale, I went to Sunningdale from seven till 13 
Um, and for the North American, you know, audience not familiar with boarding schools, I mean, to be fair, for the British audience not familiar with boarding schools, you know, I was at school three weeks straight and then I'd come home from what's known as an exiat, which is a weekend at home and then back to school. So you're really living, eating, breathing, everything is at school. And we had this incredible head chef there called James from Scotland. And he was really, took me under his wing and he showed me how to skin rabbits and cook rabbits. And part of school life was, you know, you could go out and shoot rabbits, which is, <laughs> you know, seems a bit strange perhaps now. But don't forget, this was 30 years ago and it's a different culture. You know, it's a culture of English the, the British countryside is a culture of guns and a culture of field sports and a culture of nature and a culture of a bit more freedom, perhaps. Did um, someone teach you these skills or did you just pick it up through the culture? Is it that commonplace that... I think it's just commonplace. Um, yeah, you know, where my father grew up as well. He went to a very similar school, Heatherdown and then Oundle, which are similar sort of setup. So there's, that's one side of the story. That's one side of the story and the romance. And you always hear all this crap, you know, the chef, the first time he ate his oyster, he knew he was going to be in love with food. And, you know, it's lovely and it's romantic and it is truthful. But it's also a reality that I failed every exam I ever took. I ever took. In fact, math GCSE, which is a basic math exam that everyone has to pass. I was still trying to pass when I was 18. Most people pass it when they're 12. So I'm desperately unintelligent and I'm also dyslexic um, and I failed everything. And the result was my future was looking bleak. <laughs> it's the truth, <laughs> it's the absolute truth. My future was looking bleak and I wasn't going on to university. I certainly wasn't going to be, you know, um, going to law school anytime soon. And um, I said to my parents, what should I do? And my father said, well, you know, you love fishing, you love fish. Why don't you learn how to cook them? So um, I wrote a letter to Rick Stein. This was before I left school when it was becoming clear that things weren't going overly well academically. I loved school. I had a wonderful social life. I loved my time, but I wasn't going on to be a, you know, a, a, a physics professor. And um, he said, why don't, you, why don't you write to him? So I did. And sure enough, he wrote back. And I left school on a Friday. And the following Friday, I started working for Rick Stein. And who is Rick Stein? Rick Stein is a chef that at the time was considered a two Michelin star chef. He didn't have stars. He didn't accept stars. He didn't like the system. But everyone knew that working at his restaurant was working in a two-star restaurant. And... Um, it was very hard work and it was in Cornwall, which is the surfing capital of England, in the southwest, that sort of boot that's on the southwest of England. And that was the beginning of it. How old <clears throat> were you at this time? 18. Okay. And what was that journey like working with Rick? How long were you with him? And So I didn't actually work with Rick. By this point, he had a sort of small empire. I worked under two of his head chefs, Alistair and Stefan. Um, at two of his restaurants, which are in the same town. And um, it was a big, steep learning curve. I remember my chef de partie, Gordon McDermott, an Irish man. Almost every day that I'm in the kitchen now, I hear Gordon's voice barking at me. And it was a real, you know, apprenticeship. But it was also the days when, 
you know, this idea of you sit somewhere and cut onions for 12 hours just isn't the case. I was straight in at the deep end and we worked 16 hours, 16 hour days very, very frequently. And it was very hard work, but it was also incredible. And we were a team and I was part of a team, be it the bottom rung, you know, in that team, but I was part of a team and the learning curve was very steep, very, very steep. And there were two options. You made it or you didn't. And I made it. And what did that springboard you into? That really leapfrogged me into coming back to London and continuing to work at good restaurants. Um, I went from commis chef to demi chef de partie, to chef de partie, to junior sous, to sous chef. I finished up as sous chef. Um, for Poissonnerie de l'Avenue, working for Mier, uh, Pierre Rosiglioni, Pierre, Rosi Pierre Rosiglioni, uh, an amazing man, an Italian man who ran a very famous French restaurant, Poissonnerie de l'Avenue, in the cent central London in Sloan, Sloan Street. And I worked as sous chef there. I then went on to work for Michetonks at Fishworks and just basically bounced from restaurant to restaurant to restaurant. And I was in the restaurant world until 12 years ago when I moved here. Is your training as a chef in classic French cooking, is that? I wouldn't say so. I've certainly, I mean, three years under my belt at Poissonnerie de l'Avenue certainly gave me a good foundation of classic French seafood cooking. Um, and I'm very grateful for that. But I, I, I certainly haven't spent 20 years in a classical French hotel, you know, learning classical banquet dish, dishes or anything. But yeah, I have a basic understanding of it. What is your cuisine style, if you were to Mediterranean. I love simple Italian, simple Spanish, simple French food. That's what I understand. That's what I eat. That's what I cook. That's what I really love. And by the time you finished your, your restaurant work 12 years ago, what then brought you to Canada? My wife. You met her in England? Met her in England. There's always a boy or a girl involved somewhere, isn't yeah. there? <laughs> um, or a cat. It's often like, well, my cat couldn't leave, so I had to stay <laughs> with my cat, you know? Um, so, yeah, we met in London. She was a nanny, and she was doing her master's in criminology. And um, and we met, and actually, she she had just been dumped. And she turned up for her work as a nanny and was crying. And her boss said, well, you know, this is no good. Here, go away, but here's some money. Go and, you know, go shopping or get drunk or something. And um, she did. She came to a cooking class and she did get drunk on limoncello, no less. And at the end of the class, when um, I said, does anyone have any questions? We were cooking brisket. She put her hand up and I thought she was going to say, could you use parsnips instead of carrots or is it really important to put garlic in? But no, she said, will you come out for a drink with me? <laughs> and we went out for a drink and that was that. Wow. Yeah. How long were you together before you came back to Canada? Um, about six, not very long, about six months. I was ready to get out of London, really ready to get out of London. Um, I was, I was, yeah. And we came here for a holiday and, you know, she was, I mean, she was a nanny and she was, um, f she just finished her master's in criminology. And, um, so it was a good time to move. Did uh, she have roots in Victoria? She's from Victoria. Okay. Born, born and raised. Yeah. Born and raised in Victoria. 
And when you first arrived, had you been here before? I'd never been here before. I'd been to Toronto. I have family in Toronto, but I'd never been here. I'd never heard. I mean, talk about never been here. I'd never heard of here. Wow. It's named after one of your queens. It is, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) At what point or did you immediately know that this was a move to stay? I think it was fairly instant. I actually thought it was going to be smaller. The way Michaela described it, I thought Victoria was going to be a quaint little fishing town or something. Um, But it was fairly, you know, it was fairly instant. I knew this was the place. We came here for a two-week holiday, and then I went back to London, sold my life, and quit my job and all the rest of it, all the stuff one needs to take care of. Took care of your cat. Took care of the cat, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, And and, uh, I moved here. And we did the classic thing. I mean, the same as everyone. We, you know, we rented a suite and um, worked, you know, paycheck to paycheck and started life like that. Yeah. What were the early years of The London Chef like? Was it an instant success? It was horrific. It was horrific. Absolutely horrific. A wonderful adventure. But we used to joke that we wouldn't go, you know, we wouldn't go to work before 5 a.m. and we would not stay at work past midnight. Short day. That, that was the goal. It's good you know? thing you're not good at math. Yeah. Um, and, and that really was the goal. And, you know, we couldn't afford staff. We now, I mean, now it seems so easy. We couldn't afford staff. We had a cafe that we changed the menu every day. So I had to be there. I, I had to have the ovens on and be cooking and making croissants and making salads and making sandwiches by 5 a.m. Otherwise, we were hooped to open eight, open at eight. Then we would serve hot lunch every day. And then I would be teaching classes. So then come three o'clock in the afternoon, I would have to be bright eyed and bushy tailed to teach a, a class to everyone. And then at six o'clock, another class and then do all the dishes and everything afterwards. So it was it was really, really, really tough. Were there any moments where you weren't sure if you were going to make it to the next month or the next week? Michaela was very, very smart about shielding me from the finance stuff because my role then and my role now is to be the entertainer and to be the the guy full of energy. And I think I know behind the scenes things were very tough. And Michaela, you know, testament to her financial capabilities kept us afloat. And it wasn't easy, I know that. Um, but we did everything we possibly could to bring money in. And, you know, we would drive six roast beef sandwiches to souk to get $60 through the till, which is ridiculous. <laughs> ridiculous. But A our, drive for listeners about yeah, yeah, two hours. Yeah, exactly. Round trip. <laughs> but our philosophy was take any business because yeah. maybe those six roast beef sandwiches are going to someone who's then going to book a cooking class or whose mother has just died and we're going to cater their the funeral for 250 people. Who knows? You know? So um sorry, that was a morbid, morbid <laughs> example. But people do die. Could be a wedding. <laughs> could be, be a, a wedding. Girl. It could be a wedding. Or a christening, bar mitzvah, perhaps. <laughs> um <laughs> it's the lovely sunny day. It's made me feel a morbid thing. Um but the fact is we did everything. We literally did everything we possibly could. And it worked. What major pivots did you have to make along the way? You know, we've we've made some scary decisions over the past decade, and mainly it's been getting rid of things. There came a point when the cafe 
just wasn't something we wanted to do anymore. And it's scary to close the doors and turn down that, you know, X amount of money a day. Um, but it was a lot of staff to deal with. It was a lot of cooking to deal with. It was a lot of ordering to deal with. It was a separate business. I mean, we used to think, why is this so hard? And then we realized we didn't open a business. We opened a cafe, a shop, a catering company, and a cooking school. And I was doing consulting. We opened, and if you like, a private dining room, because we did private dinners. We opened six businesses in one go. So that's why it was tough, you know? And I often look at things like, oh God, it would be nice to own a cafe or nice to own a shop or nice to own a cooking company. We opened six things in one fell swoop, basically. What had to go other than the cafe or was that it? We're now in the process of winding down catering. Um, and, you know, that's also another scary thing to wind down. I mean, you know, an August wedding for 200 people is a uh, fairly profitable, you know, but, um, we're a great cooking school. I would argue we're one of the best cooking schools and that's what we do very, very well. And that's what we love. And that's what we opened. And we're now in the luxurious position of saying, right, we don't want to do that. And we don't want to do that. And we don't want to do that. And what we want to do is teach people how to cook. So with half the cooking stations that you could oversee are you missing out on a lot of revenue or are you making plans to to capture that in other ways no we're sensible i mean things have happened along the way you know we had six cooking stations and a demo station and then we suddenly realized hold on a minute the demo station could just be flipped after the demo at the beginning of the class and now we've got seven cooking stations which over the course of a week amounts to a fair amount of extra revenue. So we're being smart. We also do some really big classes where we have different formats where we can get lots of people in and they're great fun, especially Christmas parties and team building parties and all that kind of stuff. And, and indeed colleges, you know, we have students in from various colleges where we can take a lot more people because it's a slightly different format. Um, but yeah, you know, the, the, we're, we're always thinking about what's next and, and, and it, it, it's never sensible to allow things to become too stagnant or stale. So we're always, um, we always have our thinking caps on. You are now and have been for quite some time a, a celebrity chef. Can you talk a bit about moose meat and marmalade? I mean, yes, celebrity. It's funny. I do. People do recognize. You are, you are. People do recognize me. So I suppose to a certain you're degree, you're on TV. I'm on TV. <laughs> if that if that is what if that is what's required, um, it's true. I am on television, and um, I've been very fortunate to be involved um, with moose with moose meat and marmalade now for a long time. You know, a long, long time. Seven years, and development started long before that. Development started almost nine years ago. <laughs> And it's a wonderful, it's been a wonderful project. It's been an amazing adventure. I've learned a huge amount about the television industry. And most importantly, I've learned a huge amount about First Nation culture across Canada. And um, that for me is priceless because I'm not sure how else I would have had those experiences. What is the premise of the show? The premise of the show is essentially myself and my co-host, Art Napoleon. And Art is Cree and Deniza. He grew up in West Moberly 
um, with the West Mobile um, First Nation and the Soto First Nation in Northern BC in Treaty 8 country. And we go off and we hunt and we fish and we cook and we, we do it across the UK, across Europe, across Canada. And really we, we explore each other's cultures through food. That is the punchline. We explore each other's cultures through food. And we also explore other cultures because, of course, going to one community in Canada is one community. It has nothing to do with communities in, in other places, different languages, different protocols, different looks, different traditions. So um, we really explore culture in general through food and taking into account, you know, a lot of environmental stuff. Um, but the premise really is... Learn about it, kill it, cook it, eat it, have fun. Is it always hunting based? No. Um, fishing and hunting do rear up quite often, but sometimes it's simply foraging or sometimes we'll go to an amazing farm and learn about their chickens or learn about their eggs or learn about their pork. Um, but quite often fishing or hunting and certainly some foraging are a big part of it. I think you have a bit of an interesting story how this show came about. Is that right? Yes. So one of our first big contracts was with uh, May, Street, May Street Productions. Um, Hillary Price. This is the London Chef. The London Chef, okay. yes. One of our first big contracts at the London Chef. Before we were in the space we're in now, when we were still sort of slightly traveling nomads, we worked out of a kitchen downtown. And um, we were doing the craft services, which is essentially supplying food and lunch and so on to crew and cast for tv shows a show called tiger talk and um hillary pryor was the executive producer and the director of the show and um art was in the lineup and i seem to recall he had an old winchester 3030 over his shoulder as a prop and we were talking about this old winchester 3030 which is a type of rifle um and talking about hunting and fishing and you know briefly and as he moved down the line and the executive producer Hillary was standing behind him and overheard this big Cree gentleman and this little white guy chatting about some bizarre similarities in their youth despite the fact they obviously come from different worlds a boarding school in England and a reserve up in Soto First Nation on Mobley Lake is very different but bizarrely some similarities and she thought hold on a minute I think dollar signs may have flickered in her eyelids, you know. She thought, oh, well, this could be something. Bring chalk and cheese together, but, you know. And um, that's when it all started. Where did you guys go with that for episode one? Episode one, we went back to arts, um, arts, uh, traditional territory, and did a beaver hunt. And that was the first, the very first adventure I had on the show. And it was the first time I'd seen that kind of production. I'd done lots of local news. I was experienced with a camera and a microphone. I wasn't experienced with three cameras and microphones and audio people and assistants and all the rest of it. And off we went. And um, off we went and we went beaver hunting. Yeah. Do you ever watch your episodes? You know, I have to now. I was just watching a bunch of season five 
because I have to do post-production stuff, which requires I have to look at it so that I get voiceovers right and I get the post-production um, filming for recipes correct. But other than that, not much. If there's something I want to remember, I sometimes do. And now thinking about it, I just... You know, I'd love to go back and watch the Beaver episode because <laughs> I haven't watched that for years. Um, but it's a bit, you know, the the nice thing about it for me is I can go back and watch them. And I very rarely do. But, you know, it's nice, nice, to, nice to see how good I looked 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so during that first journey, Beaver hunting, did you have any sense of where the show or the future of the show might take you, or were you just kind of in it for the ride and taken in the moment? I was in it for the ride. It was a wonderful break from from the London Chef, which, you know, as I told you previously, was really hard. And, you know, to be fair, it was hard for everyone back at the London Chef because I just left. And by this time, you had your cooking school up and running. Oh, we had a cooking school. We had yep. everything up and running, and it was people like Nikita Williams um, that were... You know, Nikita was really running the show along with Michaela. And God, I hate to think what it must have been like for them. And if I do the math, since our two kids are out cycling around right now yeah. on the farm, you had a newborn. Yeah, there was a kid involved and not quite at that point because she's six. But, you know, uh, yeah. Not long after. Not long after. In fact, that first season... And I don't know when, I was only back. It was actually our cat, Daisy, that hatched the baby. Because Daisy would curl up on Michaela's tummy on top of that baby. Because I was away. I only got back a week before she was born. <laughs> the cat's back. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the cat's back. Um, wow. So, you know, it was... Uh, and yeah, you had a heavy traveling schedule with this, Heavy. In, often in places with no cell service. Mm -hmm. We were up in, you know, Pink Mountain, Northern BC, Treaty 8 country, Peace River. Um, that same that same set of travels, we did a bison hunt, a buffalo hunt up in um, Pink Mountain. And that was out in the middle of nowhere. You, you, you came off the main road, drove three hours on logging roads, and then two hours on ATV trails. So it was really in the middle of nowhere. And, um, you know, that you're not exactly phoning home to see if everything's okay. You're really out there. But it was great for me because I got to, I got to experience the wilderness of Canada. Yeah, you've seen more probably than most who have Absolutely. lived, lived Absolutely. their whole lives. And, and, and as a result now, I'm, I, I, I love the wilderness, but for me, more importantly, I can go to almost any community, any First Nation community in Canada, and they know me. <laughs> so they right. watch me, they watch me on the screen, <laughs> they know me, and um, yeah, it's, it's a lovely feeling. How many travel days did you have uh, a year for that show? Um, you'll have to do the maths for me, but it's average four days four days of filming per episode okay on occasion a travel day either side of that although we tried to sandwich it all together for obvious reasons and there's 13 episodes a season okay so a lot it's about one out of every five days you were away yeah what were some of your greatest takeaways of that experience which at this point has just concluded correct yes just concluded in fact tomorrow 
to Tuesday and Wednesday, I have my last little bit of filming for some of the post recipe stuff. And then I've got some voiceovers to do. And then that's it. We are done. I'm officially done. It's sad, but it's a huge achievement as well. Mm -hmm. five, ep five seasons are under our belt. 65 episodes are in the bag, as they say. We are wrapped and we're airing in 10 countries wow. and and two 10 countries and two airlines wow that's incredible so it's you know it gains some traction and um it will continue to gain traction as you know what were some of those takeaways how vast canada is how incredible some of the communities are, how diverse First Nation culture is. Even a hundred miles down the road, you find a different people with a different language, certainly a different dialect. How different the languages are across Canada. Um, some of the struggles people have. How unbelievably accessible the wilderness is here and you know, I've always been a hunter, but I've never quite grasped how, you know, it's very easy here for someone to get a gun license, get a hunting license and legally go out into the big, the big forever and um, put meat on their family's table and and enjoy it at the same time. You know, I must always remember that. Um, enjoy the outdoors. And um, it's... Yeah, I've, I've, I learned a lot. I learned a lot more than if I hadn't done the show. That's for sure. I can't imagine I would have spent much time in Northern BC or in Nunavut or in Northwest Territories or Northern Quebec or Southern Ontario or, you know, I mean, wow, 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 wow. Haida Gwaii. I mean, what a place. What did you learn from your co-host, Art Napoleon? I learned bush skills. I'm feel pretty comfortable out there. I've learned a lot from various people in town. I have a great hunting <coughs> hunting buddy, Andrew Moyer, that's taught me a lot, but I've learned a lot and I feel fairly comfortable. But I've got an expensive truck nearby. I've got a little orange machine that if I press it and hold my finger down, a helicopter at some point is going to come. Hmm. I've got the latest gun and the latest knives and special fire lighting equipment and, you know, overpriced waterproof um jackets that keep you warm in anything and special boots and you know granola bars in our pockets <laughs> art taught me how you don't need any of that and you know here's a man that can walk into the woods with a knife and survive and that's very special and that isn't through being fashionable that's simply through growing up, and he won't mind me saying, growing up with a simple, financially relatively impoverished childhood, but an absolute plethora of knowledge and fast learning curve. And he retains that knowledge and he knows that, and he's passed some of it on to me. And I feel a bit more, I feel a bit more at ease out there now from some of the stuff he's taught me, you know, what you can eat. We look around and see greenery. He looks around and he sees a salad. What were some of the most unusual things that you ate during the course of the show? Chuxis, which is moose colon, 
fried colon 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 clean cleaned out cleaned out in the river moose eyeball moose nose soup which is the big joke with moose nose nose soup is you boil you boil the snot right out of it (laughs) um and moose tongue but of course that's not weird because we eat cow tongue is there not enough food on a moose that it can fill you you need to eat these other yeah use it all up how are they how are they Moose eyeballs horrendous. Chuck Cease isn't great either. <laughs> the colon. Moose, the colon, yeah. Moose, moose nose soup is is actually fine. I mean, it's no different to any other. You imagine sort of cartilagey stuff. You're making flavor. You're making broth and there's chunks of cartilage in. Um, and of course, you have to remember all this stuff. If you're hungry, it's very good. You know, it's very good. But you know that that was that was all great. I love beaver. Very very tasty. And in 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 Nunavut. Um, you know, ptarmigan and Arctic hare, which are very standard fare, and seal. You know, in Iqaluit, everyone drives around, be it on their sled or their truck, with uh, or their ATV, with the slogan on the back, eat seal, wear seal, seal is life. And um, seal is their life. And maybe a little less so now, but seal was their life. And no, that's not fair. Seal still is their life, spiritually and for many other reasons. And when you live in a place with no trees, you need fuel. And seal fat is fuel. Recently, you said you ate some raccoon. Yes, that's true. I did. How was that? Very good. Just like the dark meat on a turkey. And I don't eat turkey these days. I don't eat any farm meat. But it reminded me of the dark meat on a turkey and it's very tasty now i wouldn't suggest people go out and you know eat the raccoon that's in their back garden that's full up with diapers and twinkie wrappers but this was a raccoon out in a you know out in a in an orchard and art and my art and i both feel the same way let's not waste and with farming there's some waste you can't get around that um raccoons often need need controlling and there aren't many farmers around that don't kill a raccoon now and again, but there aren't any farmers around that eat a raccoon now and again. So, and we thought, let's eat it. And we did. And it was good. What is some of the more interesting flora that you ate? Um, you know, we've, we, the mushrooms are always amazing. And I, you know, mushrooms are fabulous. And I remember finding my first morel was a really exciting experience and now I wouldn't say I really know what I'm doing but I certainly know enough to pick chanterelles and pl- pick um, morels and pick pines um, I think for me things like you know cattails and all the different parts of a cattail that can be eaten and can the plant the plant the cattail okay. yeah that comes out of the yep. yeah sorry 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 yeah, not, no, not, just, not, just not 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 um, not 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 nothing to do with a siamese cat you understand you know <laughs> um the you know cattails are amazing that coming out of a pond and the, the 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 shoots at the bottom and the and up at the top and the 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 tuber that comes off the bottom so many bits that are great camus camus was fabulous which of course was a big big part of coast salish life and the charnath life and um you know camas is fascinating thing and tasty cooked in a pit yeah it's amazing what can be eaten out there Mm. yes now that that is winding down what other projects 
are moving to the forefront or have already. We're working with a prison system, Wilkinson Road Jail, and um, that's something that's we're really enjoying. Um, you know, it's we go in there, it's maximum security, and we go in there and we teach cooking to inmates. We do restorative justice through food to some of the um, indigenous inmates. And I do that with Michaela, and it's something that we do together, and we always leave feeling great. I love teaching cooking, but do I leave a class where some investment bankers have come in and learned how to make pasta feeling great? I mean, it's fun, and I think it's useful for them, but I don't feel, leave feeling great. I leave the jail feeling great inside i feel like i potentially you know have i changed someone's life i may bloody well have saved someone's life um because it's just that one little thing to make a change next time they're in and out and in and out and that one little thing that changes them next time they come out so i may have saved someone's life and um yeah it's very special what's the setup like when you're there a lot of security. They take it very seriously. I think if I was stabbed and killed, that'd be the end of the program. So they take it very seriously. Um, but you know, we, we have a, we have a room that, um, we turn into a cooking school with camping stoves and knives and boards. And I've always said this and I maintain it. Any room is a cooking school. You need some tables, which could be logs with a bit of plyboard on if you want, and you need a camping stove. They cost 22 bucks a pop, and you need some sort of sharp implement, and you need a pan, and you have a cooking school, and that's exactly what we do. We set up a programs, programs room into a cooking school. The security is taken very seriously, joking aside. Of course, I have special alarm devices on me. There's always a correctional officer in the room, and it all runs very smoothly. And I always say to the guys as they come in, I don't care why you're here. I don't care how long you're here for. Today, we're cooking together and I couldn't care less what's on the outside of this room. We're just in a room cooking. And um, it's worked very well. How did that come about? I work with, we work with the John Howard Society, a program called Blade Runners. And essentially it's youth with barriers to employment. And they come to the London Chef and we teach them basic cooking skills. And this was the natural um, progression to that. Was this your idea? Did you and Michaela approach the prison or did someone? I don't know. You? I don't know. I often don't know stuff like that. I have no idea is the honest, honest answer, but I love doing it. Michaela would know. And is there a long-term prospect for this project? Are you going to continue with it? Certainly. Um, I think anyone who has anything to do with it can see how um, gratifying it is, how important it is, and um, how far-reaching it potentially could be. Let's be real. There's a lot of jails with a lot of people doing a lot of time. And I'm a great believer in, you know, the, 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 the argument always is, well, why is someone doing time in a prison? Is it to protect the public? Is it simply to punish them? Or is it to rehabilitate them? And I'm a great believer in rehabilitation. 
based on the fact that most of the people that are in jail are just going through a secular pattern of drugs, alcohol, and really screwing up. They're not bad people. They've just messed up and they can't stop messing up. And I really believe it's programs like this that could break that cycle. Once they get out, or are you seeing this as having an impact while they are still in prison? Oh, while they're still in prison. I, I, think I presume cooking's not available to them, or is it? No, but what? But but it's not just about the cooking. It's it's making people feel proud and able. And those guys, they walk in, and three days later, they walk out of the cooking classes, and there's a huge change in them. So you're with the same group for three days? Three days, yeah. And how, how long? How many hours a day? Four hours a day. Okay. And so after 12 hours, they leave and there's a significant change in them. Hmm. And they now realize that they're able to do something, you know? These are often people that, you know, don't have career options, are in and out of jail, petty crime, drug problems and alcohol always seems to be an issue. And... Um, you know, they've just cooked a meal for themselves. They've helped their friends make a meal. They've shared their meals back with their, their, you know, roommates essentially. And I think it's, I think it's something that really is going to be a big part of Michaela and my, my, my lives moving forward. How long have you been involved? About a year now. Okay. And Shirley, Shirley Williams, who is the, 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 She's the big boss at um, John Howard Society. She's been great in the, the growth of this. And there's a couple of particular correctional officers that are very progressive. And they've really helped. Wyatt is a guy who is unbelievable. And he comes up to 30 years now at Wilkinson Jail. And he's seen, he's seen jails at every stage. And you can imagine how much they've changed in 30 years. And he says, this is the way forward. Have you had anyone reach out to you and, and tell you the impact that you had on them through this cooking project? Yes, through letters. We've had letters from some of the inmates and they've really, they've been quite quite moving, you know, quite moving. And you start to, you start to realize how this really could and perhaps is and can change people's lives. What else are you working on right now, Dan? I'm working with Destination Victoria, formerly Tourism Victoria, and that's great fun. It's a lot of travel, but it's great. I work with Emma Parsons at um, Connect7, which is a, a, a great events company and destination company. And really, whenever Destination Victoria as a group and a team is going to Toronto or Ottawa or San Francisco or Toronto or New York or Vancouver, I go with them. And I do cooking classes and cooking demonstrations and cooking competitions and help rally up corporate tourism for Victoria. And I've been doing that for quite a few years now and I really like it. How did that come about? Did they connect with you and offer you I that? I have absolutely Again, no idea. I'm going to stop asking that I question. have no idea how it came about. <laughs> but you're having a good time. But I love it, yeah. That's great. What does, uh, how has fatherhood impacted you? You have two girls, two beautiful girls that came about during this busy chaos at times that has been your life. How, how has that changed you? You know, 
it's interesting, isn't it? it? Of course, it changes a person hugely. I think the the most tangible thing that I can think of is how I view the world and how I receive news. Before I had kids, you read about a horrific, you know, war that's affected children. You 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 read about history where children were involved and of course it's ghastly but it doesn't it never hit me in the same way and now when I open a newspaper and I see that you know a a two-year-old has been killed or you know a horrendous thing has happened to a two-year-old it hits me like a ton of bricks you know and takes my breath away and that didn't happen before I had children it was, of course, a terrible thing when horrendous stuff happens to kids. I'm not saying it wasn't, but it didn't hit me in the same way. And now it does. And that's something that I've really, really noticed hugely. That when I'm learning about history, reading about history, when I'm learning about things that have happened in this country to First, our First Nation communities, um, it really pulls at the, pulls at the heart, you know. And... Um, I'd say that's a major thing for me. I mean, they're a bloody nightmare, aren't they? They take all your time up and they're expensive. So there's that as well. (laughs) What is their relationship with food? Their relationship with uh, food is outstanding. I've hidden nothing from them. They um, both love coming out to the truck and grabbing ducks and grabbing geese. And Juliet, our eldest, loves helping me skin deer and is fascinated by it. She's enjoyed eating raw meat all her life almost to the point where, you know, she becomes like a feral dog at times when we're, sk- <laughs> when we're skinning a deer. She wants to try all of it. She ha- she loves raw meat and I, and I you know, that's a good thing. Um, their mother is a wonderful cook, a fabulous, outstanding cook that takes great pride in giving them amazing food. And they really do eat great food. And I mean, let's just think about yesterday. Yesterday, they had bear sausages for breakfast. Last night, we had venison steaks for dinner with great vegetables. We get all our vegetables from Central Saanich. Um, tonight, we're having mallard. And we're making salad rolls. We thought it'd be fun to make salad rolls. So we just stopped at the farm and we bought a bunch of vegetables. And I'm going to pan fry mallard breasts with Chinese spices. And we're all going to make salad rolls and sit there eating that. Um, so they eat great food. They They love good food. I'm not saying they, do they ever eat, ever eat candy? Of course they do. Do they ever have some chocolate? Of course they do. But they also love broccoli dipped in some olive oil for a snack, you know? So, um, yeah, it's, it's a great balanced diet and they really love it and they love the process of how we get it. I'm going to move into a little game Yeah. with you. Good. This is a either or. Yeah. You can expand on any of your answers or just leave it as a single word, but a bit of a speed round with the caveat that you can okay. you can slow it down at any time. So we'll just start with some options. Sage or rosemary? Sage. Artichokes or sunchokes? Sunchokes. Sauerkraut or Brussels sprouts? Oh, Brussels sprouts, hands down. I love Brussels sprouts. <laughs> Himalayan salt or Vancouver Island sea salt? 
Well, that would depend where I was. Yeah. Well, yes, you're here on Vancouver Island. Vancouver Island, Vancouver Island sea salt. If I'm cooking in Goa, Himalayan sea salt, Himalayan pink salt, yeah. Butter or coconut oil? I hate to say it, these days, coconut oil. <laughs> that surprises me. Gluten-free or gluten-rich? Gluten-rich. Farmed or foraged? Foraged. Beef or venison? Venison. Hands I don't eat beef. I love beef, but I don't eat it. Thai or Indian? Indian. Mexican or Italian? Yeah, Italian. Ginger or turmeric? I'm getting into turmeric more, especially fresh turmeric root. But because I still don't really know what to do with it properly, it's got to be ginger. Hummus or guacamole? That is an excellent, excellent question. Can I mix the two together? <laughs> what that be? <laughs> Guacimus? Guacimus. <laughs> Honey or maple syrup? Well, now, it was always maple syrup. And I was recently in Quebec, and we went to a sugar shack, and it was outstanding. And I was given, you know, I had the taffy on snow, and I was given a big chunk to bring back. But I have a good friend who makes honey up in the watershed above Shonigan and his bees um, feed on fireweed and salal. And the honey's so good. I'm going to say honey. We had hives here for a few years, top bar hives. We had a heck of a time keeping the bees yeah. healthy and alive. We did not keep them for honey and we actually only ever harvested once. Just and, you wanted them to pollinate? Yeah. 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 And we have so many bees here. We realized yeah. we, we didn't need to, to do that. Um, we harvested one kilogram of honey. It was incredible. Yeah. Hands down. It was worth the thousands of dollars that we invested in those hives. <laughs> we so very sparingly would serve. But you know, that that's, up, that, isn't that the great thing <laughs> the about flavors in it? were it's incredible. It's so from good. From all the herbs here on the farm. But, it was but, amazing. But you make the great point, you know, of, of, I remember someone saying to me once, you'll never eat a more expensive carrot than the carrot you grow yourself, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. <laughs> Poolside barbecue or beach campfire? Beach campfire. Okay. Moving on to weed or feed. So is it a weed or is it food? Stinging nettles. Food. Dandelions. Weed. Plantago. What is that? <laughs> Plantain. Uh, it's Plantago lanceoleta or major. It's a, it's a grass. I make pestos from it. It's fantastic. We use it medicinally for well, bee stings. I'll say, I'll say weed for now. You give me some for lunch and then we'll come back and I'll say food. Sounds good. Sorrel. Sweet sorrel. Sorrel, yeah. Yeah, I, I love it. Really lemony. Makes wonderful in butter, actually. Blanched and then blitzed into butter. And you take a piece of that butter and you melt it over white fish. Outstanding. Nice. Yeah. What is your go-to meal or food if you had to be put on the spot? Rice cooked in game broth. What kind of game broth, or does it not matter? Anything. I mean, we, we always seem to have venison broth in the freezer because there's a lot of bones on a venison, on a, on a, on a venison, on a deer. Um, but any kind of game broth. Rice cooked. I love rice and I love game broth. So I think that is my, you know, when people say, what do I eat? 
I eat a lot of like simply fried meat, simple rice, nuts, medjool dates. I, I have a, I, I, can you actually turn up at NA and say my drug of choice is medjool dates? Because <laughs> I, 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 I'm almost getting to that point where I, we've got to have an intervention, you know? So when I was younger and traveling the world, I was probably 18, 19, or maybe even 20 during some of these. I couldn't afford medjool dates. Yeah. But I would buy the little niglet dates or whatever yeah, yeah. that you could get in any convenience store sure. anywhere in the world. Came in 500 gram packages. Yeah. I would eat a packet a day for yeah. sure. Yeah. So yeah, I, I was with you on that yeah. one. Yeah. I had to cut myself off yeah. because the amount of sugar I was I eating. I know. And I, it's, you know, I can, I can eat, you know, if you had some nuts there, I could eat a sensible amount of nuts or chop up an apple. I could eat a sensible amount of apples. If you put medjool dates on that plate right now, especially if they were strapped fresh out of the freezer and they were like cold and chewy, <laughs> I wouldn't be able to stop. And I'd have really bad stomach cramps and I'd be in pain and I wouldn't be able to breathe. Have another one. Do you stuff them with anything? Sometimes I'll open them up, take the stone out, a little bit of good peanut butter and a pinch of salt. Yeah, yeah. I mean, outstanding and healthy and nutritious. But if you, you have one. One, one. <laughs> Not 18. <laughs> yeah. So I, it's ridiculous. <laughs> oh, well, thank you for that, Dan. You have uh, accomplished so much. And I, my hat's off to you for all that you've you. brought to the city of Victoria, the culture, the cuisine, the experiences, the education through your, your show, uh, now the work that you're doing in the prisons. And you really, you and Michaela have... have uh, brought so much to this community and I want to thank you for that. You have also been uh, played a huge role in our school of holistic nutrition. Our students have used your cooking school as their classroom for I don't know 8 years now probably. It is 8 years, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, they've they've learned so much from you and from the other cooks and chefs that you brought in to teach them. And I want to thank you for that right, and, thank and you. That, I greatly value that relationship that's seems to be uh, only growing as far as the experience it's, uh, yeah students. it's something we really really enjoy and they're always such a lovely bright brunch bunch that you know i think look forward to their weekly cook mm -hmm. and they eagerly bring their mason jars ready to take <laughs> home any scraps you know no so, plastic yeah no plastic yeah uh, well actually before i go i want to back up your meal of choice your rice and game broth what kind of rice really anything i'm not overly i'm not overly picky i mean it's i i you know here's the thing i really try and in many ways my lifestyle is eating incredibly local food all the meat i eat comes from my own gun much of the fish i eat comes from my own rod you know um seasoned with a bit of vancouver island salt and often cooked in you know, bare fats from the Souk Hills or just boiled in some, you know, water from here. So it's very, but I am very um, fond of rice and it doesn't really matter what rice it is as long as it's white and I eat lots of it. It's got to be white. Okay. Take, a I, listen, take a listen to episode six of this podcast with Stacey Taves. He's the co-founder of Level Ground Trading who is, as you can tell in the episode, extremely passionate about rices of okay. the world. Uh, and they no longer, I think, do carry their rices, but they used to import some phenomenal 
rices, some heritage really? grains. Uh, but he, he gives a, a very uh, good promotion for trying some of these global rices, most of which come from the Philippines. I'll have to check that out because it is something I definitely eat a, eat a lot of. And recently, broccoli. Mm. Oh, my God. I don't know what's wrong with me. I, I'm, Do you I'm, guys grow it? No. Because it can grow year It's probably easy here. to grow. Oh, it's a weed here. Will you teach me? Oh, yeah. Well, my wife will teach you. I okay. Don't, I don't, you don't, you don't. No, I, I just <laughs> harvest it. She grows it. She grows it. <laughs> but we literally, as every meal I'm in the garden harvesting year-round, doesn't yeah. matter uh, what the weather is. And if my son Ollie is with me, he's just eating the broccoli heads right wow. off the plant. Amazing. January, February, March. It's It's always here and always abundant, so... Do try. Great, thank I'll, I'll you. give you a tutorial or, or set one up for yeah, you. Yeah, set one up for me, yeah. Dan, I really appreciate you doing this. Thank you. It's been good fun. Yeah. And I wish you all the best with your, your ongoing endeavors. Thank you very much, Todd, and thank you for having me. My pleasure. Cheers. I hope you savored this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Dan Hayes. If you want to experience Dan as a teacher, check out his cooking school, thelondonchef.com. Or consider joining Pacific Rim College's world-renowned Diploma of Holistic Nutrition, a program in which Dan teaches a semester of cooking classes. If you are interested in less lengthy studies in nutrition, consider enrolling in our nutrition workshops at pacificrimcollege.com. Or visit pacificrimcollege.online to see our growing lineup of online nutrition courses. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends and family and give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you are using. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, tie on an apron, heat some butter in a pan, and add a pinch of this and a dash of that. Thanks for tuning in.